Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Eden Foods, the most trusted name in certified organic clean food. When you shop online at EdenFoods.com, enter the coupon code ORGVIEW to receive 20% off any regularly priced items, excluding cases. For other promotional offers, please visit TheOrganicView.com's website. And don't forget to check out our contest section. Today, my guest is Dr. Bob Quinn, who is the president of Kimut International, and let me tell you something. This is going to be a very interesting show, especially for people who seem to think that organic is completely done in this country. So the question is, is there a future for organic agriculture? Now, with the approval of GMO alfalfa, GMO sugar beets, and now GMO corn, organic farmers are fighting harder than ever to protect their land and crops. Meanwhile, the agrochemical companies are pleased that their profits are soaring thanks to the widespread belief that the USA is now the largest producer of GMO crops in the world. It assumed it, that organic is in peril. Now, why is this so devastating to organic farmers? One main reason is cross-fertilization. This is especially disastrous for organic farmers because once an organic field is contaminated, the organic farmer certification is at risk. The organic label prohibits the use of GMO crops. Losing organic certification would mean the farmer's goods can no longer be sold for the premium price that helps cover the cost of growing organically. Now, according to farmaid.org, most GE crops hitting the market aren't developed by multinational companies such as Monsanto, Syngenta, DuPont, and Dow Chemical to increase their sales and push their related pesticides. For example, Roundup Ready crops are all engineered to withstand Monsanto's toxic herbicide Roundup. With Roundup Ready alfalfa and sugar beets on the market, Monsanto can expect increased profits from its new seeds as well as increased sales of Roundup herbicide to douse all those new seeds. This has also been a core issue for the beekeeping community who has expressed concern that the combination of GMO crops with the companion technology of systemic pesticides has further devastated the rapidly declining bee population. It appears that the fate of organic farmers in the United States seemed doomed, but is it? So I would like to welcome to the show Dr. Bob Quinn. Good afternoon and welcome to the show, Dr. Quinn. Thank you, Jen. It's uh, my pleasure to be with you. Dr. Quinn, can you please tell our audience about yourself and also about your company? Your company has such a fascinating business model, and I'm just such a huge fan of what you've done. And more people need to know who you are and why you are such an amazing person. <laughs> well, you're very kind. I'm, I'm actually uh, primarily an organic farmer from north central Montana. I grew up on this farm. It's been in the family for uh, over 80 years. My grandfather and great-grandfather started in north central Montana just after the homesteaders were beginning to leave, after they went broke, many of them. Um, I was uh, raised here, went to local schools in Big Sandy, and uh, then on to university, Montana State University, where I studied botany and plant pathology and earned a, 
master's there and then went on to UC Davis in California where I uh, earned a PhD in plant biochemistry. So my goal was to go into um, plant science research. It's, science is my first love and um, although interesting turn of events, I ended up back in the farm where now my uh, entire farm is my laboratory essentially and I, I live out my passion by doing lots of experiments on our farm trying to develop and perfect organic systems for the the uh, Northern Great Plains. So, in essence, you're in support of technology, especially if it'll help farming. Oh yes, of course. We're looking, always looking at uh, different ways of uh, increasing our uh, stability and our knowledge of of the land and the plants that we grow on it. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions about people that are. Uh, advocates of organic that we are anti-technology and I myself love technology I can't imagine going back to living in the cave personally but you know I, I, th I think the problem is not so much technology but it's, it's the way it is um, introduced and the way it's controlled uh, we see in the world now a very small and powerful cluster you know, controlling large segments of technology and using them in their own um, for their own benefit without really uh, allowing them to be perfected or um, made safe. They rush to market and uh, with nothing more uh, in mind than the control of agriculture and the world food supply. And why is it that they rush the technology? <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe because uh, they're the first to get it in their hands. And so rather than to really perfect it, they have introduced what I, I, I would say are defective um, um, plants and seeds on the on the environment and on, on agriculture and without um, regulation or oversight or being required to fix some of those defects they just go pell-mell ahead and um, with their desire to um, control the entire seed markets amazing isn't it well it is and I think if they were um, required or if we had other competition that introduced more responsible uses of that technology, we could see some benefits from it in some sectors. Now, with the organic market, when you're seeing a GMO, they're um, uh, not in favor of having that particular technology introduced to their food supply, particularly the way it's been done now with so little um, safety tests of, and, and those who have raised questions on safety being hushed up and, and um, completely discredited by their uh, uh, media thugs, you might call them. Um, I think there's raised a lot of questions about that. Um, if you, if you, for example, have a GMO crop that you release release on the market without any um, control of the um, the pollen drift from that crop, for example, for its ability to contaminate other plot, other crops, I think that's irresponsible and it's a defect of the crop that should not be allowed on the market. Um, on the other hand, if you have a crop that such as wheat that doesn't um, uh, particularly have a risk for pollen drift but can be easily contaminated in the handling system because there's no easy way to di differentiate between GMO and non-GMO. I think it's a defect in the GMO wheat not to have some kind of a marker system where it can be easily detected and segregated from um, non-GMO wheat or, or grains for, uh, for the benefit of those who do not want them in their, uh, in their diet or in their food. That's a very interesting point. Now, with your your business, uh, can you talk about why you started your business right. and what you've done to make sure that the crops that you grow 
are not only protected, but actually benefit the farmers that choose to grow it? Well, we've... Um We've looked at the models that uh, exist uh, uh, in, in, tech, in these high-tech firms, and we've tried to do almost everything opposite what they're doing because we think they're going completely in the wrong direction. Um, so what we have done is start with an ancient wheat that has never had the benefit of any um, type of hybridization or crossing to increase its agronomic um, uh, capabilities such as increasing its yield or increasing its disease resistance or making it easier to grind or easier to make a big um, low volume uh, bread or or that kind of or have the a beautiful a certain color in pasta the, the many things that have been done over the last hundred years in breeding programs for wheat to change them and make them either um, cheaper to grow cheaper for the uh, end consumer but certainly uh, allow the farmer to be paid less money for them but also producing in great volumes. And what's happened to that, what we've seen, is a great loss in nutritional um, uh, components. And so we didn't, although we didn't start out with this idea, we soon discovered that people who ate our ancient grain, which we uh, sell under the trademark of Kamut, um, who previously had trouble eating modern wheat, all of a sudden could eat this without difficulty. And in many cases reported to us how they felt much better after eating um, this ancient grain and, and not eating modern wheat. And we found that very interesting and started to do research, particularly in Italy, where they also had um, such phenomena to the point that they were uh, believing that there was a problem. In the United States, we had a hard time finding any scientists who believed there was a problem. They would say, they would um, scoff and say, well, it's just in people's heads. But after finding so many people who had trouble, uh, we were convinced that it wasn't just in their head and it was something that was real. And after spending a good deal of money, well, every year, the last five or six years in Italy, we've been able to now uh, pinpoint some definite changes that have resulted in a deterioration of nutritional value, which has caused a decline in some people's health. And they have to do not only with protein and gluten, which is normally the um, uh, the problem that's singled out in wheat and, and, and kind of the... Uh, excuse for all all ills, we have found there's changes in the starch, changes in the antioxidant capacity with um, secondary metabolites have been reduced in, in concentration and numbers. The starch has been um, changed so that it, makes a, it might make a, a higher low-volume bread, but it um, digests so quickly in your stomach that people who have diabetic problems are at risk um, eating this kind of starch and other uh, their systems that are, say, delicate um, are affected by it, and so they have trouble. We're also now starting to look more closely at the protein, and we're finding um, not only our antioxidants' uh, capacity has been decreased, but when they are, are eating ancient grains, we find uh, increase in um, uh, resistance, well, not resistance, but overcoming um, heart disease problems. Um, we have uh, found... Also, now we're studying the irritable bowel syndrome. So we're just one one string is sort of leading to another piece of information. It's quite amazing to us what we're starting to un, un, unlock in this in this area. Not just in fact, I just want to point out what you talked, what you mentioned about the protein range. I mean, that's a very high percentage, twelve to eighteen percent. Of the what, June? Pardon me. 
the the protein range. Oh yes, yes, the protein in it is very high, and also the minerals um, taken up by this plant, this ancient plant, are much higher than modern wheat. And yet the protein is in a different form than the modern wheat, and doesn't seem to give people trouble digesting it as they have with modern wheat protein. Uh, Another remarkable thing that we found just by accident last year was in doing uh, rat studies, rat feeding studies, and we're looking at um, uh, liver samples, which normally in these kinds of studies are highly inflamed. Uh, With the ancient wheat um, diet, there was no inflammation. So now we're pursuing the the strong possibility that this grain has very strong anti-inflammatory properties. And for a grain to have that, that's completely unheard of these days. And modern and modern wheat certainly does not have it. And yet, these ancient grains, and I'm sure that this phenomenon can be um, also looked at or, or observed in other crops where you've had significant um, breeding over the past, just focusing on such things as yield and, and to the... Uh, uh, well, to the, the other thing that happens when you do focus on just one thing is that things like nutrition then um, are reduced. Now, as far as growing the kamut, what uh, what advantages are there for farmers to opt to uh, grow the kamut? And um, I mean, is it is it more difficult to grow? And what about um, just the overall benefits financially? Well, I, being a farmer myself, I wanted to set up a program where everybody wins, and that's really not a normal um, uh, business philosophy of the agri um, uh, tech guys, the, the, the high tech guys. Mm-hmm. Um, we set up a uh, we 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 do. St- control the purity of the seed, but we sell the seed to the farmers at the same price we buy back the grain. It's not our goal to make uh, big money on seed from the farmers, on the back of the farmers. We we just have an exchange. Um, but we are very keen on having that seed kept pure. Um, we require farmers to grow this seed after green manure um, rotations, which green manures are legumes which build up the soil nutrition so that we can have the highest value of protein coming off of those fields. And so we help the farmers increase their um, ro- uh, the value of their rotations and the output of their crops by giving them uh, instructions of how to, to introduce the best green manure uh, rotations possible. We um, do not encourage them or do not even allow them to grow over 20% of their farmland in this one crop because rotations and crop diversity is the um, central um, theme of stability for organic systems. And it's completely opposite of the monoculture um, uh, focus of, of uh, high, um, high-tech crops and, and high-tech farming. The system is very stable because it's very diversified. And if you look at the long term, that is a very course, I think. Now, let me ask you another question. Exactly how many acres in America are planted with the Kamut? Well, our biggest acreage actually is coming out of Saskatchewan, and that's a little bit due to the ease of working with the um, uh, transportation system there compared to our transportation system. The best place to grow Kamut brand wheat is um, north and south of the Canadian 
the U.S. Canadian border on a line that runs from the Rocky Mountains just about to the middle of North Dakota. So even though there's um, about equal acres on both sides of the of the border, the number of farmers in Saskatchewan, organic farmers in Saskatchewan, equals about a thousand. In Montana, an area about the same size, at least in the uh, the um, grain growing area we're talking about, we only have um, maybe uh, 50 to 70 farmers. So there's an enormous potential uh, loss to us in America because the lack of of um, encouragement and um, help and and stimulus from um, research and government agencies in, in the U.S. compared to Canada, and particularly Western Canada. So we have probably now about, uh, out of 50 or 60,000 acres uh, in production, uh, there's going to be f- more than, uh, probably around 40 of that, uh, more than 40 in Saskatchewan and less than 20 in, in Montana and Dakota. So that's, the, unfortunately, that's the way we are now, but it's also a reflection of the organic acres we have available to us. We pay very high pro, uh, premiums for this grain because it, the grain does yield less than modern wheat. Um, so we believe the farmers need, should be compensated, and they should be compensated for their willingness to grow something of higher value, and we pay them more for it. So they, they receive a good compensation, and they always know that they can count on us taking their grain. We don't find excuses to discount them on little you know, uh, blemishes or things that um, sometimes the markets will discount, but we're able to utilize the grain in different markets we have so everybody wins on this situation. Basically, you've developed your own fair trade uh, market within your own circle, if you will. That's right, and and it's it's really um, built on customer loyalty and, and farmer loyalty. And, and on being really transparent about what we have and what it does. And it has generated enormous demand in Europe that we can hardly keep up with. And um, it's just now becoming better known actually in America, but it's much better known in Europe, and particularly Italy, than it is here. Now, with, um, with the existing number of organic farmers that are growing the organic commute, um, do you see further growth? Uh, in the upcoming years due to the interest in organic farming and also the the fact that many farmers are completely against uh, growing GMO crops. Well, that's true, June. And also, even though many of them have been sold a bill of goods on, on how uh, great the program is and how much need there is, the fact is that the, the high-tech um, crop program extracts an enormous cost from the farmers. And even though they start out by saying, well, you can make more money as they ratchet down, ratchet up the uh, cost of seed and of their chemicals, the margins for the farmers keep going down and down. And, and truthfully, for those that are grain farmers, would have a very difficult time being profitable or even being in business without high government subsidies to pay for all these inputs and all these chemicals. And our goal is to have a system really that could be independent of those kinds of subsidies, where the farmer could earn their own um, uh, their their own salary, as it were, their own return um, through their customers and the demand of their customers for something that's better. Imagine it paying a little bit more for your food, but being able to reduce your medical bills by a substantial amount. So in the end, you actually save money and feel better. I think this is a much better approach than just having high inputs that that prop up an artificial system that is not sustainable. 
Well, that's an excellent analogy, Dr. Quinn, especially uh, when it comes to eating organic foods. Most people that do consume organic foods strictly, they it's been proven that they do have uh, better health. Um, I'm living proof of it. Uh, well, I think like, there's been a number of studies, especially for children, where yeah. they're seeing less allergies than the general population, less ear infections, all these kinds of things that we now almost come to accept as the norm really don't have to be, uh, we don't have to be afflicted by them if we were to watch our, our diet and be careful about what we eat. Yes, I, I completely agree. Uh, now, with, with the farm, let me just ask you some questions just that pertain strictly to the agricultural process. Okay. Um, is it difficult to grow the kamut? I mean, do you have the typical issues uh, with growing other crops. What, what is it like to grow uh, organic kamut? Well, it's very, very similar to organic wheat or, uh, in our area, conventional wheat. Wheat is a crop you don't uh, put a lot of inputs on. We grow our own fertilizers, so we grow green manures such as alfalfa, sweet clover, peas, um, to build up the nitrogen in our soil rather than buy nitrogen out of a sack, which the chemical farmers do. Um, that is the same for uh, band grain as it would be for uh, modern winter wheat or spring wheat. Um, we then um, rotate those crops so that we're growing um, different types of crops every year, crops that are um, deep-rooted compared to shallow-rooted, broadleaf compared to narrow-leaf, um, early-seeded compared to uh, late-seeded, um, all really these kinds of things that throw weed and pest um, cycles mm -hmm. into um, a dither and they can't really uh, take over the crop. And that's how we're able to avoid um, the use of her herbicides and other chemicals to control weeds and pests. So you really and, and the code is the same with the weed in that regard. Interesting. So you really take very good care of the earth as you're rotating the crops and, and doing all the things that you really should that would prevent most of the diseases, most of the uh, weeds, so on and so forth, that people are typically concerned about when considering which, which crops are appropriate for their farms. Yes, what we try to do, we look at, we live in the northern Great Plains, the upper Great Plains, so we look out on the prairie and see how, how the good Lord made it in the first place. It wasn't monoculture. Um, there were legumes there, there were um, deep-rooted, shallow-rooted plants, narrow-leaf, uh, broad-leaf plants of all kinds, herbs and grasses, and, and uh, what we try to do on our farm is mimic that, because that's a system that was sustainable for thousands and thousands of years. So we try to mimic that on our farm. Not that we do it all the same year, but through rotations over over five or six or, or eight years, we can expose the field to all those different kinds of, of crops, and some put different things in and some put take different things out, so that over the lifetime of that field or over a, several decades, that field is more in balance. The soil is more in balance, and I think that's a real key to our success. Thank you. Uh, have you had any interest from overseas markets other than in Europe uh, that are looking not only to purchase uh, the Kamut but also to grow it? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. We, we have experimented all over the world to see where this might grow best, and uh, it's quite amazing to us after experimentations in Argentina and Russia and in um, North Africa and Australia all the major wheat-producing areas, um, we've come back to um, this 
portion of northern the northern Great Plains as the place where it's most consistent and highest in uh, quality. And that was a big surprise to us. Um, this grain is very, it's quite finicky. It, um, it came out of Mesopotamia and uh, in Turkey, they, uh, the farmers there believe it's the grain that Noah brought with him on the ark. So they have a long tradition of this grain. It doesn't uh, yield as much as modern grains there, so it's, it's kind of fallen out of disuse. It's not in the marketplace except for local markets where people grow it and use it in their own kitchens just locally. But because of its lower yield, um, the farmers aren't able to uh, get a profit that they need to uh, sustain them by growing it. But in the, in the organic market, however, where people appreciate more the quality than just cheap um, cheap food and cheap grain, they're looking for high quality, then they're able to make it profitable and economic for some of these farmers to grow. But still, the problems that they have there with pests and in, insects and variability in uh, environment and weather and heat and cold and rain whatnot makes it more um, uh, more profitable and more uh, successful here in the, in the northern Great Plains of Northern America. When it comes to organic farming, what are some of the challenges that you think we have here in the United States in order to not only preserve the land, but preserve crops, especially when it comes to GMOs? Well, if you have a crop that is um, <clears throat> produced by cross-pollination, by insects or wind, there's a big, big problem with preserving the integrity of those crops. I have friends in Nebraska that uh, were years and years developing um, unique open pollinated um, varieties of corn and just one year with GMO contamination put their whole um, program just out of business. Um, if you look north of the border, and I don't know why more farmers in America don't look to what happened to the neighbors, but you see that there the, the devastation wasn't with organic farmers, but it was with chemical farmers growing canola for the European market, which did not want GMO crops. And when their canola became contaminated, which almost all of it did in Canada, the chemical farmers, which were, of course, the vast majority, lost that entire market in Europe and lost millions and probably billions of dollars. And yet nobody talks about that. Um, but it's a real thing for them. And we have similar um, uh, problems on the horizon with both Asia and Europe are not interested in having GMO crops, particularly uh, having them come in on label where they can't make a choice. And that's one of the big problems I see in this country. We don't have a choice what we eat because we don't know for sure what we're eating. Do you see that changing uh, in the very near future? Oh, <laughs> how near is near? I, I think it's changing. I, more, a great, vast majority of the people in this country uh, do not want GMO in their food. They don't not want to eat uh, genetically modified organisms, and most of them believe that they're they're not eating them. But the facts are that most of them are eating them every day, and they don't even know it. I think the more they come to that realization, the more it will be the demand for proper labeling, so that they know. Oh, how they can make their choices. If they, if the GMO is as good as the proponents and the, the owners of the patents say it is, then I think they should be out bragging about it everywhere and getting people to support that. That's what we do with our products. We think they're wonderful, and we're not afraid to tell everybody where to find them and how to find them and how good they are for you. That's just the opposite of what we see of the owners of these seed patent people. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned patents. Can you, exp can you just elaborate... Um for our audience that is not familiar with 
uh, everything that you've done with uh, Kamut International with the patents, because I think that's such a crucial or critical component to the success of your business. Well, it is. What we have done with our Kamut project is, rather than patent something, we have um, created a trademark. <clears throat> and a trademark, in, in our case, stands for certain guarantees. So the Kamut trademark, for instance, um, guarantees that the, the, the products, the bread or the crackers or pasta, whatever you're buying with that trademark on it, has come from organically produced grain. It's pure. It hasn't been contaminated with modern wheat. Um, it's uh, disease-free. It has a certain level of protein that's quite high and other um, minerals. So we promise a certain level of certain minerals, like selenium is very high in it. Mm. And those are the kind of guarantees that we make with a um, trademark. And by the use of that trademark, where people sign license agreements to use it properly, there's no cost for that, but they give them permission to use the trademark, they promise to uh, follow the rules of that trademark. A patent, however, is an ownership of a of a grain, and if you own, the thing that I, and I don't have a I don't have real heartburn uh, for the concept uh, in in some aspects, but the way it's applied so much today is that the owners of these um, high tech seeds want to have all the rights but none of the responsibilities, and to, in my mind, ownership of a seed or of a of a vehicle or whatever you own um, and have patented. That you should have the responsibility if things go wrong, if things are, if there's defects in there. And the owners of these things um, refuse to take any responsibility for any of the trouble or losses that's been caused by their patented and seeds which they own. It's very interesting and also uh, sad that that is basically how they operate. Uh, but I think, especially in this country, uh, more and more people are voicing their opinions, they are purchasing uh, very wisely the types of products that they're buying and they're demanding the certifications. They want to see the proof. They're tired right. of I, the game. Right. I think education is really the key. The more we talk about this, the more people understand it, um, the more we demand that um, uh, better and more extensive research be conducted, looking at um, safety issues, particularly allergies and things that have been reported but never followed up on, um, I think the better off we're going to be. And in the future, where do you see, where do you see Kamut as opposed to the conventional wheat or if they do wind up uh, deregulating GMO wheat? <laughs> well, of course, that's their last Sebastian um, is wheat, and, and uh, these folks are, will stop at nothing to get it approved. Um, with wheat, as I mentioned earlier, we don't, the problem is not going to be cross-pollination. The problem will be cross-contamination in the handling systems. And um, I think that we should demand, that people should demand, first of all, that that uh, we have labeling so they know if they're eating uh, GMO bread or not, and they should also demand, uh, and, the, and the grain handlers all the way down, for, all the way from the farmers down to the millers, should demand that there be some kind of a visual um, tag on this GMO wheat so that they can be visually identified in handling systems and not contaminate um, whole truckloads or boatloads undetected when it could be, which would cost millions and millions of dollars. 
and losses if you have a contamination problem. Whereas if it's detected at the at the elevator level when the when the first truckload comes in, um, the loss you're talking about there is like hundreds of dollars uh, compared to millions and billions if when you're talking about tr- uh, shiploads. To me, it's it's very reasonable and um, makes a way where theoretically you could have some um, uh, coexistence. But I think with coexistence, you need to give people choices. People need to know what they're what they're eating and have the right to choose what they're eating. Well, is there any type of legislation that they're working on to, um, I guess, put in different types of, um, I don't know, uh, regulations as far as the handlers so that they have to segregate the organic from the GMO? Well, certainly the, we already are, uh, handlers are required, or their customers require them to segregate GMO from, from organic. Um, even um, GMO, organic has to be segregated from chemical wheat, um, and that's um, done normally by using dedicated facilities. Uh, because as you can imagine, there's not a visual difference either between chemical wheat and GM and, and organic wheat. Um, but if you're using uh, different facilities and and the farms have uh, are careful on on clean out procedures that they're having to use grow both, well, it can be done, and um, that is uh, already in existence. So we uh, we won't need legislation for that. But what we would need, I think, is some kind of um, uh, legal definition of, of responsibility going with rights of ownership. Mm. Um, and there needs to be responsibility for losses when they occur by the owners of the seeds, which I, in my mind, in, in my opinion, are, um, are not, are, are defective and, and have not been perfected before they've been released onto the, onto the agriculture and onto the population. Um, if you're talking about right to know, for those of your listeners living in California, you folks are going to have the chance to vote in the next election, the next general election, on your right to know um, that uh, will require GMO foods to be labeled. And I'd like to see that that uh, sweep the, the whole country, that kind of, of um, policy and, and uh, uh, requirements. I think that would be a huge benefit to us. If that does pass, and I also would like to see the same thing, how do you think that's going to impact the uh, the non-organic market? The labeling? Yes. Huh. The non-organic market? Well, I think that the um, the manufacturers will have to make a determination of where their um, supplies are coming from, where their raw materials are coming from, and those raw materials sellers will have to declare if there are GMOs in those materials. And if there's GMOs, they're going to have to be labeled. So that will be a requirement just as we have other uh, requirements on our labels now that have been that have been um, uh, brought forth for the, for the public's benefit. It'll be no different than that. Well, it's kind of interesting because if you think back, uh, it, whether you look at products like cigarettes, which who would have ever thought that there would be the labeling on the packages and the advertisements for cigarettes that there are today? 
Yes. I mean, you know, people think it's interesting when you talk to the public and, you know, you get some people that think, oh, it'll never happen. Well, you know, who would have ever thought that that would be the case with cigarettes? And also with some of the artificial sweeteners. Yes. I think it's amazing that on the products, you know, it, it uh, especially products that contain saccharin, uh, the, the label that is on there. And I look, Bob, what do you think about the saccharin issue? Well, I think it's very similar to many of those other um, <clears throat> things that you've mentioned that started out quite benign and were thought by many people to be just fine and helpful and, and even in the positive in many respects, where with education we were found that it wasn't any of those things and that and the downside really um, more than uh, made up for the, the upside so that you had a, neg a net negative and required some of these um, labels that we're seeing now that are much more uh, negative. And yeah. I think the same thing, I think, I really believe the same thing we'll see with the future of, of some of these GMO products, at least the ones we have now, um, whereas they were uh, told everything, we were told that everything's fine, don't worry about a thing, It's every, we've tested it and it's, and it's and it's wonderful and it's great and I think that more and more the people that eat it, particularly if they start labeling it, so people can connect it with eating something that can be identified, um, we're going to start to see other questions arise that will maybe change the whole uh, attitude and how we look at these things. Thank you. Now, with the farmers, what are some of the things that farmers are doing? Or should I say, organic farmers are doing to protect their land and their crops? Well, I'll tell you some of the things that we're doing. We, our, our customers, particularly in Europe, were quite alarmed at the last time um, GMO wheat became uh, close to being introduced, and they asked us, what are you going to do um, to guarantee to us that we're not going to be contaminated with GMO wheat in your organic products? And so we started putting together a plan. We didn't implement it completely because the, the GMO wheat was backed off for a while. Uh, at least at times. Right now we're still in that time when it's not on the market. It's not being, hasn't been introduced. But we considered such things as eliminating farms in our program that uh, were uh, split organic and non-organic, for instance, eliminating all um, cleaning facilities that did split um, organic and non-organic processing so that we could avoid the cross-contamination. As, as I told you, that's our problem with the grain. It's not the pollination, it's the cross-contamination in the handling systems. And um, <clears throat> having different um, requirements, um, eliminating the possibility that farmers could use custom machines perhaps. We had several things on the table that we were looking at that would protect us, that would, it would raise uh, our costs and would um, uh, cause uh, increased paperwork and supervision, but because of the of our customer demand, we we're willing to uh, do everything we could to to make these guarantees to them that we were clean. And I think that's a very important uh, point, especially with many of the larger manufacturers that are dependent upon that that high level of quality so that they can continue to please their customers. I mean, the uh, United States produces some really great organic products, and well, um, I have to say, uh, we have really great companies here, uh, regardless of what some of our friends across the pond might think. The United States still does produce some very high-quality organic products. Yes, and that's why there's such a demand 
Um, if they could meet their own demand for high-quality products, they wouldn't be here buying now. Um, and it's not only price. I mean, they certainly, it's more expensive to grow in Europe. We, I mean, that's clear. But <clears throat> it's also because of their uh, the increased rains they have compared to particularly the, the West where it's drier and other factors, our quality of crops really exceed theirs. And they're very interested in that. They look pretty. They taste good. Um, our soils have much more minerals in them. They've been farmed for at least for I, where I am in in, um, in north central Montana. We've been farming this ground for less than 100 years, for heaven's sakes. And if you compare that with farms in Europe that have been farmed for several thousands of years, there's a big difference in, in the mineralization still left in those soils. And that <clears throat> those minerals then go right straight into our diet and, and either um, add to our health, or if they're not there, they, they don't add to our health. And so we have to make up that deficiency in some way. Well, it's just very interesting that even though you've only been farming the land for about 100 years, uh, the way that you care for the land, the rotation of the crops, the care for the soil, just the overall care of the environment as well as the people who are farming that land, that is basically the perfect recipe and why you've been able to produce such a high-quality product. Well, it's my goal to pass that kind of heritage down to my my kids and whoever might be farming this land after me. I actually myself haven't been farming for a hundred years, of course, since um, <laughs> I was born after World War Two. <laughs> but uh, it's been my grandfather came after World War One, so and, and he taught me to garden and and many things uh, of, uh, to farm the way he found it and the way he saw it. And my dad was a leader all the years he was on the farm. So I'm used to innovation and, and trying new things and looking forward. And, and to me, organic farming has just made farming fun again. It's exciting. It's, it's, um, it's fun. It's, it's appreciated by my customers. And that's one thing I never had as a chemical farmer. I never had anybody write me a note or say to me, thank you for growing food for my family. I never had that. In organic, since I've been organic, I have experienced that. And that's a great um, satisfaction and, and uh, sense of um, appreciation that uh, I never had before. And it made me look at my farm in an entirely new way that I'd never looked at it before that happened. That we are actually, we're not growing commodities on our farm. We don't grow any commodities. We grow food, good food, nutritious food for people to enjoy and to not only just enjoy, but to help build the health and strength and uh, vitality of themselves and their family, their children, their grandchildren, their grandparents, everybody that they, that they affect around their table. And that's what we try to do. And it's interesting. People are often uh, asking, what exactly is the definition of sustainability? And I think, Dr. Quinn, what you've created, in essence, is the true definition of sustainability. Well, that's been my goal. To me, organic should, by definition, be sustainable. And, of course, you can have systems that aren't. But if you really are looking at long-term and um, diversity, which should be an integral part of that, you're looking at sustainability. And that's, um, that's, how, we've, that's how I view it, and that's what I've seen actually will work. Now, my next question has to do with the fact that uh, over the holiday season, uh, the GM, GMO corn uh, it was deregulated. Uh, how do you think that these 
GMO crops are going to fare, especially when the market, especially the European market, is saying, you know, we don't want this stuff? Well, <clears throat> unfortunately, uh, some of these people, they feel like they know best, and their their drumbeat is that we are here to feed the world. And, and that is that really isn't true. I mean, that's those crops will not feed the world. They're they're not that high in yield. Um, but if they're going to keep it in a domestic market, such as the United States, and they're going to keep it under cover, meaning that it's not labeled, so no one knows about it, that they're eating it, or it's in their on their food shelf, then it will probably fare fine. I think that once the um, you know the curtain is pulled back, like we had in the in the Wizard of Oz story, and there you find who the wizard really is, you're going to find out that there's going to be a lot of of um, people who are going to think twice before buying this stuff and putting it on the table for their kids to eat and for their grandparents to eat. Um, Until we reach that, however, um, I I see very little slowdown in the the steamroller mentality that a lot of these companies have, and they've been very, very successful. Uh, But they've done it by um, their might and their money and their inside influence. And when the public finds out about this and has a uh, understanding of it, then it will start to, I believe, then then it will start to reverse a little bit. And uh, the more that people are educated, the more they find out, the more it will be reversing. I, I agree. And it's just interesting that in Europe it's mandated as far as the labeling, and once that passes over here, I think that there will be a tremendous shift as far as, the choices that people make, especially once they see that label on the product, and they know that. Yes, of course. And if I were them, I would focus on really what is good about it. So if that if they're required to label, they can tell what's good about it. And maybe when they're finding studying what's good about it, they'll find ways to improve it that will take away some of the negative things. But that's not their that's not in their not in their um, agenda right now. I personally can't see anything that is a benefit. So uh, for me, that um, the more companies that make the conversion to organic, the better. But uh, there's also the problem of the fact that with the transition, I mean, it's it's a lengthy period. But now, uh, because of the systemic pesticides, you're talking about a whole different ballgame. And uh, I did receive a comment from Tom Theobald, who is the... Colorado beekeeper who um, has been very outspoken in regards to the neonicotinoids, and uh, he said the organic farmers are not only under assault from fugitive pollen, but also from fugitive systemic pesticides as well. And he said, quote, the soil contamination is of equal importance to organic farmers because it accumulates in the soil, migrates with groundwater, can remain in the soil for decades, and destroys the organic status of the land. And that is something really that should be considered, especially with any farm that uh, is under this uh, belief that, okay, well, you know, at some point if we want to make the transition, uh, it's going to be a matter of, you know, we could do it one, two, three. Not anymore. They're making it so that the the process, it's going to be extremely difficult. The three-year process is not going to really apply because the soil, uh, the stuff is in the soil, and to clean that up, uh, you've got me. 
I think that's really true, June. And what you're doing with a lot of these chemicals is eliminating choices. And that's what I like so much about organic agriculture. If you have a, a crop failure or uh, a um, event that wipes out your crop, uh, a rainstorm or a hailstorm or something, you can go right in and plant something else. Whereas if you've applied, if you're a chemical farmer and you've applied some kind of um, a spray to one crop that is detrimental to all others, you don't have that flexibility. You can't go in and plant another crop right behind the destroyed one because it might be uh, the, the chemical on that first crop may be toxic to the second one. And a lot of people don't think about how many choices they are eliminating for themselves by buying into this chemical um, package. And, and that problem, as you've described, is just increasing and increasing with more uh, potent chemicals that they tout that well, you were losing, using less and less, but mostly they're more and more potent too. And, um, and, the, and some of the residuals are a lot longer and a lot more problematic the way you're describing. So we um, who are promoting organic agriculture tout our system as really a, a, a system of freedom and choices. And you're not beholding to what you've done the, the last year as far as chemicals and, and toxicity on your plants or your next crops. You're not um, forced or saddled with huge, huge uh, fertilizer bills or huge chemical bills or huge um, uh, seed bills for patented seeds. You can use your own seeds if you want and or else look at other choices. And that's what I think is so exciting about organic agriculture and why in the long run it was actually the the type of agriculture that sustained us for thousands of years, in the long run, that'll be what sustains us again, not not the recent upstart of, the, of chemical agriculture, which is not sustainable and only um, paid for with large government subsidies. And I think the fact that, especially your business model, uh, as far as just the way that the Kamut is grown to the sale of it to the benefits for the farmers, I mean, it's a full circle sustainable model and I think that more farmers that are interested especially in diversifying what they are growing especially well specifically the organic farmers I think that the standards that you've set are not only necessary but I think that's what adds value to Kamut and well, I think that's also why it's so desirable and let me tell you um, you know it's absolutely delicious well thank you <laughs> well of course that's why people buy the second box um, you know, they might buy the first box because of the pizzazz of the story and the colors and the, you know, the frills, but they buy the second box because they love the way it tastes, and that's been our, our biggest selling point. The other thing, we just came from um, a Kamu growers meeting and um, kind of a farm appreciation dinner in Regina, Saskatchewan, last Friday night, and on our farm we're trying to perfect a, uh, a method to grow all of our own fuel using vegetable oil to um, first supply the local restaurants and then picking up that oil and then using it to run our tractors. It's all organic, it's completely sustainable, it's renewable, and we'd like Kamut the brand grain to be the first grain on the market completely grown by renewable fuel. And as soon as we perfect that, we're going to be introducing that concept to our other um, organic Kamut growers and uh, uh, putting together a program where they can combine into small groups or co-ops or companies to to have um, a method to to perfect this, so we're very excited about that. Which we're not, we're always pushing the boundaries. We think mm -hmm. that renewable fuels is just as important as sustainable. It's an important part of sustainable agriculture. And the more we can, as farmers, put under our own control, 
such as our fuel, our fertilizer, and our um, pest control, the better off we are. Thank you. And I'm just curious, when are you going to be uh, moving forward, I guess, on, on a broader scale to introduce that mainstream? Into what now? Model. Pardon me? The, the whole fuel model that you Oh, the fuel model. Yeah. I'm, we're in the last winter of trials and testing. Uh, we've been testing it on our tractor for the last two years, and now we need to perfect the um, the uh, waste oil uh, refining process. We hope that will be also quite simple. We're using high lake safflower, but you can use, depending on where you are, you can use high lake sunflowers or canola or rapeseed so that farmers in different regions can use different vegetable oils. We hope that within a year, year and a half of, of having this model ready to present, and we're not going to be um, keeping it just in our in our hands. It's, it's going to be something that we'd like to promote in every community throughout the country where it, it's feasible. And farmers that be, be farmer-owned, farmer-controlled, and there'd be no miles on the fuel or the uh, raw materials that go into it. Uh, Dr. Quinn, is there any information that you uh, are able to give out to people that are interested in learning more about this program or even participating in it? I mean, I'm sure that, especially with the audience that I have, we've got over a million listeners listening, glo listening globally. Uh, <laughs> I think what you're talking about is so incredible. I mean, I get so many emails and tweets and messages about people that they they want to get into organic farming. They want to learn about the different methods that uh, different farmers are using for whether it's uh, energy or just different techniques or just you know different crops that they're growing and so on and so forth. People are really interested in farming, and it's a nice it, it's a nice thing to see instead of people saying, "Ah, oh, farming. Who would want to do that?" Yeah, well, that's a lot of fun, and those that are interested in it that certainly can go now to the Internet and easily find all kinds of information. The principles are the same all over the world. The applications, however, are, it's very important that they find some local help for the applications in their region or their locale that makes it easier to understand how to convert. But to your non-farmer audience, which I know is greatly outnumbers the farmer audience, <laughs> let me say thank you very much for your support as an organic farmer. We very much appreciate your support in helping us um, maintain our livelihood. And uh, it, it, it doesn't go unappreciated. And we're trying to make the very best food we can for you. And we appreciate your interest in supporting us by buying it. Thank you. And Dr. Quinn, how can our audience get in touch with you if they want to learn more about Kamut or just even Kamut International and about all the things that you're doing? I mean, you are so on top of everything and just such an inspiration, not to mention the fact that you really just hammer at home. Well, I, I, I'm passionate about it, I guess you could say that. Well, probably the best. We have a website, Kamut.com. Uh, um, my email is bob.quinn at com. It's very easy. Um, I I answer my own phone. Um, but uh, when summer starts, I'll be in the field. <laughs> in in the winter, I'm, I'm, I'm inside a lot since we don't have cattle anymore. But I travel a lot to food shows. But um, I can be reached, and I'm glad to answer questions and help anyone who has a, a question or um, is trying to get started maybe with some ideas or suggestions of some of the mistakes we've made so that they don't have to relive those kind of things and, and be more successful sooner. 
Thank you so much, and it has been wonderful having you back on the show, and I really am looking forward to having you come on uh, after the official launch of your energy program. I think that this is just tremendous. I mean, who would have thought that you can actually make fuel from these types of materials? I mean, especially to fuel a tractor, that's just that's fantastic. Well, our idea is to avoid the argument of food versus fuel because we're going to do both with our with our crops. So I think that's a huge advantage that we haven't heard discussed in the by the USDA. Thank you. And folks, thank you so much for tuning in. This has just been a wonderful interview with Dr. Bob Quinn uh, from Kimut International. Uh, and thank you so much for tuning in today, folks. And please, uh, the next time that you pick up a package of anything, pay attention to see if it's labeled uh, certified organic and also speak up to the managers in your store because it does matter what the consumer wants. And you can the labels say that this is a non-GMO certified product. That really does matter, especially to the people, such as Dr. Quinn, who are actually growing these crops for your benefit and for your health. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great afternoon, folks.